am back. I am coming to you from my mama's craft room in her house. I am surrounded by scraps of quilts and knitting projects and a dollhouse and a spinning wheel. So many things. So many cool things. Um, there's actually two dolls, dollhouses in here now that I'm looking around. And it feels very fitting to be recording in her beautifully creative space as I dive into the topic of feminist ethics of care and the giver archetype um, and understanding femininity as something that's nurturing and mothering and wise and kind of diving into some of these archetypes that have been solidified in our collective psyche in society as inherently true about women. I really wanted to explore these ideas within the context of the question, what does caring for ourselves look like when we've been conditioned to prioritize others before ourselves? Exploring themes of guilt and shame and people-pleasing and how that's all tied into the story of the giving woman and the nurturing woman and what she means in a world full of people that don't care about caring for women. So to start off, I wanted to talk a little bit about the feminine archetypes um, and how they're often connected to this idea of the divine feminine and feminine power and getting in tune with your innate femininity and how that can be used to create these gender norms under the guise of empowerment. And this idea of the natural essence of things, which can get real exclusionary real quick um, and puts this expectation on women to be nurturing before anything else, which always seems to include an element of self-sacrifice, like prioritizing others before yourself and taking on the role of the caregiver, feeling guilty if you don't self-assign yourself the role of caring for others. The feminine archetypes I have heard about throughout my life, but I learned a lot about them in my class this past semester um, on witchcraft, magic, and religion, and we talked a lot about the history of how this idea of the feminine is constructed within the context of history and how women are seen in different cultures and societies and what that means for creating this archetype of what a woman should be at a certain age. And of course, a lot of it is dependent on her desirability and her relationship to what men expect of women at any given time in their life. So to begin, there's the maiden archetype, which could also be known as the virgin. And she really represents the young, innocent um, girlhood phase of a woman's life before becoming a full-on woman. And her youth is really emphasized. She is full of potential she's optimistic she loves adventure and she's kind of like wild and free and figuring out who she is in the world the maiden is often associated with fertility because of her youth and this great potential to become a mother and to bloom and grow into her womanhood so I think connected to this is a lot of weird sexualization of girls and young women and just seeing them as empty vessels of potential for becoming mothers or becoming wives. So a lot of what's projected onto this archetype of the maiden has to do with her possibility of becoming a wife and a mother 
and what that means for her position in society and is seen as especially desirable because she's young and beautiful and innocent and hasn't been corrupted by the world yet. Most Disney princesses that we grew up with fall into this category. Snow White or Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella are all kind of packaged within this story of the woman who is not yet a woman and therefore has the possibility to become the dream woman for somebody. The next sort of main archetype of femininity is the mother archetype, which represents this nurturing, loving, creative, fertile woman who is in full bloom. She's reached her full potential as a woman. Um, sorry if you can hear meowing. This is my mom's cat, Hermione, who is very happy to be here and is just chilling at my feet. So if you hear some meowing or some scratching, that's her. <laughs> um, so the mother archetype is very much all about the woman's role in relation to the people in her life, especially children. And especially if there's a man in the picture, she is the nurturer, the caretaker, the giver. And I think this archetype is where a lot of expectations and assumptions about women who have reached a certain age are exacerbated because it's like if you've reached the age of 30 and you don't have children yet, then you're not living up to your full potential as a woman. Or if you are a mother, then you're put under this major scrutiny of needing to be the perfect mother. And if there's even the slightest little hint of fucking up your potential of being a nurturing, loving, caring woman and never getting mad, never getting frustrated, never experiencing frustration with motherhood, then you're shamed for it. And you're compared to this impossible idealized archetype of the perfect mother who is always happy and always caring for her children and caring for the people around her. And that's supposed to be kind of like the peak of womanhood is being the mother. And lastly, there's the crone archetype, also known as the wise woman, and she really represents this like last phase of a woman's life cycle. She is wise and old and has all these stories to tell and is there to offer wisdom to those around her because she's lived this whole life and she has all of this reflection to share with people because, of course, whatever knowledge she has, other people are entitled to because she's a woman. And she has to be very excited and very willing to be sharing this wisdom with other people. A core part of the crone archetype has to do with a woman's age and her not appearing as desirable as she was when she was a maiden or even a mother. Her desirability is gone and so her only value lies in the wisdom that she's gathered all throughout her life. That's her purpose now is to share this wisdom and to be the caring, nurturing figure who has all the answers for people. What's interesting about this archetype to me is that throughout history, it's been used as both a very glorifying tool of creating this archetype of a woman and making her wise and desirable in the sense that you want to go to her to seek advice. Or on the flip side, it's used as a very negative stereotype of older women and is also often connected to anti-Semitic stereotypes that see these old women as witches or as dangerous or as creepy and outcast from society. Especially in a Western context, the crone archetype is mostly negative 
and is not valued as much as the maiden and the mother archetype because the woman is kind of used up and old and doesn't really serve a purpose. And I think this also is reflected through the way that we relate to and are taught to care about elderly people in the Western world. There's very much a division between generations and between how we value certain lives over others. And this is very much culturally driven. This is connected to a lot of different things, but I think a lot of it has to do with ableism and ageism being very, very connected and how we relate to and how we respond to people that don't fit in our perfect ideal box of what it means to be a human. And this is often fed by these archetypes and stereotypes that we consume through media and through literature and through representations that depict certain people as less desirable and thus less valuable as other people depending on their proximity to the health standard of a good citizen. In a patriarchal society, an elderly woman, an aging woman, does not have the same value as a maiden or a mother because she's already passed through the stages that make her desirable and make her a value to society. There are more feminine archetypes and there are kind of layers or subsections within archetypes outside of these three main ones, but I just wanted to tackle these three because they feel most central to how femininity is understood in a patriarchal culture. And I think the other thing with this is that there will always be a subversive component to these archetypes. There will always be some way that we can flip it in order to demonize women or on the flip side in order to empower ourselves as women and try to move beyond these boxes that we're put into and so part of what i wanted to talk about today was how these archetypes are used especially in conversations of spirituality to empower women and to make us feel more connected to our divine femininity which is a term that I struggle with sometimes because I feel that it's often used to create more rigid understandings of what makes an empowered woman and what makes a woman a woman. I hear a lot of turfy language around the divine feminine and using it as a sort of foundation to arguments of why trans women aren't women. I think this is common in a lot of trans-exclusionary radical feminist discourse is using this historical kind of folklore about womanhood and femininity in order to bolster their own agenda of excluding certain people from this category of feminine or woman. And it's used as a sort of gender essentialism to make these rigid categories of what makes a woman divinely feminine. And it's often connected to the menstrual cycle as though only women who bleed and only women who have vulvas are divinely feminine and are connected to this innate divinity of some sort. Which to me just feels silly because it's like, aren't we trying to get away from the idea that we are only our genitalia and that we are only connected to our ability to reproduce? Like, isn't that what we've been fighting forever to get away from? So it just seems reductive to me and very hypocritical that there are quote-unquote feminists that are arguing that what makes us feminine and what makes us powerful is a part of our physical body rather than our experience of being in the world and is reduced instead to this essential characteristic. 
Nell Noddings, who is a feminist educator and philosopher who did a lot of work around the ethics of care, frames femininity as a mode of experience rather than an essential characteristic, and that the feminine is rooted in receptivity, relatedness, and responsiveness to the world around us. To quote Judith Butler, gender is the apparatus by which the production and normalization of masculine and feminine take place. I love this quote and I will always love this quote because I think, obviously, Judith Butler, absolute icon, but also because I think that it sums up the reality of gender being this point through which people create these assumptions and norms of what it means to be masculine and feminine and that it's this place where we can project all of these ideas and come up with these rules about what is wrong and what is right, what is mask, what is femme, what is good, what is bad, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, which shows just how constructed it all is and how non-essential it all is. Gender is just a place where we fuck around and make rules and tell people what to do, what not to do based on what we think is right and wrong and what we're told is right and wrong throughout history and in our families and our cultures. Wherever we are, there are some kind of rules about what is okay, what is not okay. I think when women use spirituality or this connection to a divine feminine in order to further make rigid these norms of what a woman is it just feels sad to me and it just feels frustrating because there is so much potential for modes of connection through spirituality and through ritual and practice where we can connect ourselves through more than just these norms of rigidity and transcend these categories of what gender means in order to connect ourselves to each other and to our own selves and to the earth but some people are just so invested in these stories that they've told themselves and that they've been told just like we're all invested in some kind of story in relation to ourselves or our position in the world but the ones that limit our capacity for connection and limit our responsibility to care for each other and to care for the earth and to care for ourselves as people just feel like such a waste of potential and a waste of energy. If we were to embody a true feminist understanding of care and of connection and community, it would not be in a way that contributes to sustaining patriarchy. Embodying a true feminist ethic of care and continuously reviewing what this looks like and feels like and how this properly shows up in order to be sustainable and to be fruitful and to be nurturing to everyone involved means that it's not continuing the patterns of patriarchy and that it's not pinning people against one another and that everyone is doing the caring and also being cared for. Caring for ourselves and caring for other people in a world that tells us how we're supposed to do it or how we're not supposed to do it is fucking complicated and also exhausting when you don't know how to properly care for yourself if you've been taught that you need to always be looking out for other people and have never been taught to slow down and be gentle with yourself and have compassion for your body and your mind that are moving through this world, probably totally exhausted by all of this messaging that is telling you how to be exactly right. Embodying any kind of identity that is not valued in this world is exhausting 
And it's these people who need most to learn how to care for themselves and also need to be cared for. It is not a completely individual problem where we need to just learn how to practice the right kind of self-care and invest in those face masks and get pedicures and have spa days. It is so much more about the collective need for care between people and within one another, which means having basic needs met and being able to access resources and having community and having people to reach out to when you need somebody. Even the language of self-care has been used to further make this into an individual problem and make it the responsibility of the individual to care for themselves and to fix this problem of being burnt out, being exhausted, and making it into a point of capitalism and of consumerism rather than addressing the underlying issue of why the fuck we're so tired all the time. Finding an answer to the question of how we care for ourselves genuinely and sustainably in a system that devalues that care and that makes it hard for us to access that care within ourselves and also between other people. It's super hard to find an answer for that and you can read all the theories, you can have all the conversations, but in practice it's really hard and I think it's a lifelong process, a lifelong practice of figuring out what's possible, what's tangible, what do I have access to, what can I nurture more in my life to bring this about and to create this kind of communal practice of caring for one another in a way that makes sense for how I live in the world. But for now, I'm just going to keep going on these rambles and putting these ideas out into the world, reading all of the beautiful ideas that people before me and people during my time have come up with about what it means to embody feminist ethics of care, what it means to care for ourselves and for others in a world that doesn't want that to happen. I'm just going to keep cycling through and seeing what happens and living my life and hopefully hearing from some of you about any practices that you're committed to within this realm of thinking and continuing to reflect and grow and learn from all of the people that I have so much to learn from. A takeaway this week, I think we should all make a plan to connect with someone in our lives and negotiate with that person how they would like to be cared for. Maybe one simple act, making them coffee, making them dinner, rubbing their feet, whatever you're comfy with, whatever they're comfy with, whatever feels right in that moment. And also practice asking the question, can I be cared for in this way? I think that's a really hard question to ask. And especially when you're not used to asking people for help or it feels a little uncomfy or you're not even sure how you want to be cared for. It can be definitely hard to ask that question, but I want to encourage everybody listening as well as myself, because I also need to hear this, practice asking the question, can I be cared for in this way? It can be broad, it can be vague, it can be specific, it can be negotiable, it can be kind of abstract, but just asking that question, maybe even just starting with asking that question to yourself of how do I want to be cared for? And then moving on and trying to take the next step and asking somebody else in your life that question. I wish you all the luck in the world with that. I hope it goes well. I hope that you receive a beautiful act of care this week and you also share one with somebody and that it's a real moment of 
realizing what you crave and also what caring for someone looks like for you in a way that does not feel obligatory but feels like an act of intention. Thank you for hanging out with me this week. This was a sweet conversation. I am excited to hear where it lands with some of you. You can always reach out to me at thelily.pod and we can have a little chat. Um, Yeah, I would love to hear your experience with the feminine archetypes and what you think. If you have any strong opinions or declarations that you want to share with me, I would love, love, love to hear them. So don't be afraid to reach out. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and also let someone take care of you for a change. <laughs>